The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about Mandarin language education, and this is a topic that we've come to a couple times every year for the past few years because it is such a sensitive topic. Remember last year, we were talking about how the South African Educational Department has implemented Mandarin language education as part of the core national curriculum. Now, this brought up a lot of controversy, and it rather shocked me the last time I was in, uh, in South Africa just a few months ago, how few people speak Mandarin given that it's South Africa's largest trading partner. Then today, it was really quite exciting to see a headline cross uh, on Deutsche Welle, the German broadcaster, which said that there is the growing enthusiasm, even passion for learning Chinese in Kenya. And so it does seem to be that there is possibly a change of attitude now in some parts of Africa for learning Mandarin. And a lot of this Mandarin education is going on in places like the Confucius Institutes. And for those of you not familiar with the Confucius Institutes, they're kind of like the Alliance Francaise, which is the French embassies all around the world, their institute for teaching French. The Americans have the American Center. The British have, I think, something called the British Council, where they teach UK culture and English language. Uh, and the Chinese have the Confucius Institutes. But Cobus, these Confucius Institutes, unlike their counterparts in the United States, Japan, are quite controversial. Tell us a little bit about the background about Confucius Institutes. Confucius Institutes are usually started at universities. So it's you don't set up a, a, an independent Confucius Institute usually. It usually is in partnership with a local university. The university provides office space, teaching space, um, and institutional support. And from China comes teachers and funding. And so, you know, so, so you have a situation where language is being taught, but at the same time, a lot of Confucius Institutes also have a mission to teach culture. And in the, the Confucius Institute classes that I've attended at Stellenbosch University, it was mostly like, you know, very dehistoricized kind of ideas of ancient Chinese culture. But they've become controversial, especially at universities in the U.S., where there's been allegations that Confucius Institutes are used to further Chinese government talking points and to essentially, you know, foment Chinese cultural influence on, you know, on young, impressionable Americans. You know, so, so that, that's led to... You, you, you say that as if we're uh, like little fawns in the, in the forest, <laughs> young, impressionable Americans subject to, to Chinese communist propaganda. <laughs> Um, so there's been there's been cases where where uh, some U.S. universities actually kicked out the Confucius Institutes on their campus. Yeah, that was the University of Chicago. Actually, I think uh, didn't renew their their contract with the Confucius Institutes. Yes, and so you know, so across the world, you've seen this kind of debate going from university to university about whether it's a good idea to have them or not. Well, in the United States, it's gone so far that back in March, the U.S. Congress has drafted a bill 
that will require Confucius Institutes to register as foreign agents. I mean, that's how sensitive an issue it's become. Australia, it's also quite a sensitive issue, but in Africa, not so much. And that's why we're really happy to be able to talk about this issue, in part because it is perceived in very, very different terms. But I'd like to bring up this issue in part because it touches on culture, on language, on politics. And we're going to go to French West Africa in Senegal, where Ismail Anashe, who is an independent journalist based in London of Somali descent, he recently came back uh, early Earlier this year from a reporting tour in, in Senegal, in Dakar, where he reported on the Confucius Institutes there for a story that will come out very soon in the Hong Kong South China Morning Post newspaper. Uh, Ismail, welcome back to the program. It's great to, to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. Thank you, Kobus. Well, let's talk about what you were doing in Dakar, and you kind of picked up a little bit of the same sensibility that I was reading from Deutsche Welle, that there seems to be a lot more enthusiasm on the part of uh, at least Senegalese for learning Mandarin. And that's the, that appears to be what the case is in some parts of Nairobi as well. Give us a little, little bit of an introduction to what the mood is in terms of learning Mandarin, and why do you think now it's becoming a more important topic? Right. Well, uh, the Confucius Institutes, as you were saying earlier, Eric, are very prominent and spread out not just in Africa, but across the globe. But the reception they've had in Africa has been perhaps more positive. And I was in Senegal, in Dakar, on the ground uh, to visit the Confucius Institute in Dakar, which is probably one of the most impressive in Africa, I'd say. It was opened in 2016, uh, funded by the Chinese government to the tune of two million US dollars. And the institute is located at a university in Dakar. It has a very impressive building, which has all kinds of uh, snazzy, you know, sort of technology in the rooms. They have an amphitheater, they have a Chinese garden, and they educate 500 students uh, who are not just Senegalese, but actually drawn from across Africa. Uh, the director of the institute, a man called Mamadou Fall, was telling me that they have, for example, uh, over 12 African nations represented in the pool of students at the institute. And this institute doesn't only teach Mandarin, but it teaches also Chinese culture, Chinese history. And there is even, uh, as part of the institute, courses available to learn traditional Chinese medicine. And what you see in Dakar is that it's a lot more than just standard learning Chinese. It's, it's actually symbolic of a deeper relationship that China has struck with Senegal, which is a stable and democratic state and is seen as the gateway into um, French-speaking West Africa. And what you've also seen is, is in the last few months, Eric and Kobus, is that, you know, I've been on the ground in West Africa. The last time I spoke to you, um, I had just come back from West Africa. And I think it was just after Trump, uh, President Trump had made those comments in regards to African nations and others. And I think those comments that Trump has made and the broader U.S. Uh, retreat, you may say, across not just Africa, but across the world, has added uh, an urgency to China's increasing role in the continent. And also, I think uh, the backdrop to this story is that it's allowing the Chinese not just to do the things they've been doing in Africa for a long time, uh, at least in the last two decades of building roads and infrastructure and so on, but also increasingly they're moving into the cultural sphere. And the Confucius Institutes, whether they're in Dakar or Nairobi or other parts of the continent, represent this shift that's been happening. And finally, perhaps just to say, the other thing that's really interesting to me also, just talking to uh, young people at the Institute, is that there is a great affinity uh, increasing amongst young Africans and young Senegalese that I met there, who seem to be much more inclined towards Chinese culture, towards Chinese cuisine, and seem to have much more knowledge about Chinese movie stars and music and so on. 
So, uh, Ismail, can you give us an idea? Um, you know, there's this, this issue that, that's been discussed so much in the US of, of furthering Chinese cultural influence. How, and during your reporting, did you actually get a look at some of the, the curricula of these courses around Chinese history or Chinese culture? Like what kinds of Chinese history and Chinese culture is being taught? Well, I think that's a really fascinating question. And one of the things that's really interesting about the story, uh, Kobus, I didn't get to talk to Chinese people at the Institute. I got to speak to the Senegalese and Africans who were working there. I got to speak to the students who were obviously all uh, Africans. Um, but it was very difficult to try and get to speak to the Chinese who were there. And I did see a few Chinese teachers. Secondly, I did look at some of the material, but they were unfortunately Mandarin. I'm not a Mandarin speaker. But what I think is really interesting to me is, you know, when Eric was saying at the top of the uh, program, is that if you look at what's come out of the U.S. Congress in March, uh, lawmakers in the U.S. Congress um, effectively put in a draft bill, which would ensure that the Confucian Institutes would register as foreign agents is that there is a clear concern in you know Western capitals um, and also in Africa that not just in terms of the curriculum and the kind of history that has been taught of that is Chinese history and other histories in these places, but also the kind of very, you know, the fact that these institutes are funded and um, operated through the Chinese state are giving a lot of uh, people concern. Um, and I think while I was on the ground in Dakar, what I saw was a very impressive building with a lot of enthusiastic teachers and people who were working at the institute. And actually the director um, of the institute, Mamadou Four, who's a very charismatic uh, man, who's a professor of Asian history, Senegalese, you know, he was you know very insistent. I put the question to him that, you know, is this really just, uh, you know, a kind of front, if you like, for the Chinese state? And is this really a propaganda tool for them? And he insisted it wasn't. And he said what was really interesting and different with, say, Senegal's history of dealing with the ex-colonial um, you know, power of France is that when it comes to the Chinese today and them, you know, dealing with the Chinese today, that actually it's much more of a, as he put it, a win-win situation because it's about cooperation. He, as a Senegalese um, historian, academic, and somebody who's leading this institute gets to keep much more of his culture and his heritage. Uh, and actually he gets to decide how he operates and runs his own institute without the kind of, you know, oversight of the Chinese. Um, and, you know, another quick point to add to that is also, you know, the whole situation with um, with the fact that um, these institutes have not only propagated pretty fast, but often they're given as a gift. Um, in many of these countries in Africa, they're given as a gift um, by the Chinese state. And of course, many people might question that and question the motives of that. Okay. I mean, did he really say win-win? He did. <laughs> okay. Um, so and, so uh, that, 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 that's an indication to me that his bread is buttered on one side. I mean, of course he's going to say that the, the Chinese don't interfere because, well, that's his livelihood. I get that. Um, the fact is that, you, you know, the Chinese may offer you more autonomy than, say, another country. But at the end of the day, you have to play within the confines of whatever the Chinese parameters are. I mean, that's just yeah, the way absolutely. it is. You're not going to start talking yeah. about sensitive issues that are that the Chinese don't want to. You don't have academic freedom when you deal with the Confucius Institutes. I mean, that everybody knows that. I'm going to the sound you hear behind me right now. That's my uh, my rant box that I'm about to stand on here. And I'd like to rant for a little bit. I want to get both of your reactions to my rant. Okay, let's forget the fact that the 
the institute, uh, the head of the institute is, you know, he likes what the Chinese are doing. I get that. Of course, he's going to like what the Chinese are doing. The idea that they're not propaganda, that's ridiculous. Of course, they are propaganda. But that's what these government cultural centers do. I mean, you can't walk into the Alliance Francaise in any African country and really start ranting and raving about how the you know African migrants are treated in the banlieue and all the sensitive issues in French culture and French politics and all these different things. The same way that if I walk into an American center anywhere and start raving about Black Lives Matter, you know, they're not going to welcome me too much, especially in this administration right now. There is not academic freedom in the American centers, nor the Alliance Francaise, nor the British Council, because they are there for a purpose to promote their government, to promote their states. They are state funded. The hypocrisy of the Americans to label the Confucius Institutes foreign agents when they are doing exactly the same thing, which is to promote a narrative of their country to be able to persuade other people to believe in them. That's what they're doing. I don't blame them, but just to call their somehow pure and the Chinese somehow impure propaganda is ridiculous to me. It just offends me on every way, and I'm, it just infuriates me. So with that, I'm going to put my rant box away. Uh, Ismail, let me get your take on my rant, and then Kobus, I'd like to get your response. Agree or disagree? Well, that was quite a... Interesting that rant. was a rant, wasn't it? <laughs> there we go. But I think um, you raised a really uh, a number of very important points, Eric. And I think, well, first of all, the Chinese Confucius Institutes are effectively built on the British Council and the Goethe Institute that you mentioned and others in France and the United States. So in a sense, China is just entering the game late, but it's doing what other Western countries have done for a long time, which is both to propagate their culture uh, and their language and their way of thinking about the world. So you can argue in that sense, I think you're right, that what China's doing isn't particularly extraordinary or particularly strange. Um, what, what is perhaps different about China is the scale and the speed, um, which is interesting because, of course, China is on its way to becoming the most um, you know, powerful country in the world economically, at least in the next few decades. And that has obviously unsettled rivals and that has obviously caused upset amongst people in the West, in Washington and London and other places. And also you have to remember the history as well when it comes to Africa, and particularly West Africa, is that, you know, much of the continent um, was under colonial rule and it was split up largely between the French and the British. And in West Africa, um, Senegal has always been the kind of centre of what was um, French West Africa. Um, uh, which now I think includes 10 independent states now. But at that point, it was a vast territory all the way west from Mauritania, going all the way as far east to Niger and all the way down south um, to Benin and Côte d'Ivoire uh, and all the way to the far west on the you know most western point, which is Senegal. And Senegal was actually St. Louis and then Dakar were both the capitals of French um, West Africa. So there's also this kind of sense of it's the backspace of France, West Africa, French-speaking West Africa. So you can understand why that might rattle the, the French if they suddenly see the creeping kind of, you know, incursions that the Chinese are making in the cultural space. And then the final thing, which is, you know, is China propagating um, its message? Is this more than just culture? Absolutely. The Chinese recognize the significance of using culture as an instrument to leverage their global, you know, foreign policy and other national security interests. And the Chinese also recognize that uh, in the long term, they have to shift from just looking at when it comes to Africa, at least uh, just in terms of resource extraction, just in terms of building infrastructure, 
Now they are actually beginning to think of using culture as a capital, really, as a form of capital. So I think the other interesting point to add to that is that the Chinese are also beginning to settle in Africa. So in the last uh, couple of decades, as many as one million Chinese have settled in the continent. Uh, and there's a shift that's happening. And I observed that in Dakar, very much observed that in Dakar, which is at the very beginning, in the early 2000s, you might have seen Chinese come as laborers uh, to work for Chinese state companies and some private enterprises. You've seen laterally the Chinese work to build railways in Ethiopia or to build ports, etc., all across the continent. But now you're seeing Chinese families settle. And I was surprised to see uh, quite a vibrant, small still, um, uh, but nonetheless growing Chinese presence in Dakar. Uh, in the city, there is an area where there are many Chinese shops. It's not quite a Chinatown. It doesn't really have the features that we would tend to associate with the Chinese or Chinatown, but it, it, it's starting to resemble that. So I think you're seeing both the investment that the state is making in China, but also you're seeing ordinary Chinese begin to make their own kind of connections to, to the continent. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So, Kobus, the way that Ismail has laid out the the role of the Confucius Institutes, which is to promote Chinese culture, to promote Chinese language, and to promote a narrative, is really the essence of soft power in its kind of traditional definition that Joseph Nye, all those years ago at Harvard, defined it as, which is using the power of persuasion rather than hard power, which is the power of guns and economics. And again, nothing that what we've heard from Ismail, to me, differs from anything that we see that other powers are doing. And so I just don't understand, you know, where the double standard is coming from. Or do you think that I'm being too sensitive? Am I missing something here that the Chinese, in fact, are doing something more nefarious than what the Germans, British and Americans are doing in, in all around the world, not just in Africa with their institutes? I agree with you that what the Chinese are doing is essentially using a model that was designed in the West to, you know, to improve soft power. And I think this this model is actually considerably older than than when Nye, con, you know, coined the concept of soft power in the 90s. By then, you know, by then, uh, you know, there's been already been decades right through the Cold War of the U.S., for example, um, you know, promoting its own culture, uh, promoting its own way of thinking, uh, you know, all over the decolonized world, um, where I think the, the the difference comes in is as as Ishmael pointed out, like this is a you know the China jumped into the system pretty late, and they jumped into it, it at a moment I think when the West had lost a lot of faith and energy for this kind of self promotion because in the end the self promotion isn't just to get people to learn your language or to watch your movies. Those though all of those systems were interlinked originally. So the idea was that you would you would you would train people in your culture, for example, to to to, to learn French, to start reading French novels. And then at some stage, the, the elite of, the, of that group would be offered frequently scholarships to go study at French universities. Um, and of course, there are still a lot of Africans studying at French universities now. Uh, more Africans, you know, the France, France still takes the most African students, um, with China the second. But the idea was more, it wasn't just building soft power in the local area. It was shaping people with a, a mental 
affiliation to the country. So it's like shaping them in a way where their very way of thinking was fitted into your worldview. And, you know, so and, and, and that is what China is doing. Like China is doing that kind of old school connection of the two with people actually then frequently getting scholarships to actually go and study in China after having gained enough, you know, Chinese language proficiency to be able to do it. The difference in, in the West is that there's now, you know, since the, that system has, has declined a lot in the West, and it's been replaced by a lot of newer xenophobia, uh, just, you know, to, to call a spade a spade, um, and also a, a lot of concern about migration. And so a lot of, with that, a lot of pressure on foreign students. So the original system, the original machine that, that China has taken over has essentially broken down in the West because you can now learn French or learn, learn English at the British Council and then find it impossible to, to get a study visa to actually study in, you know, kind of in these countries. So the West is not interested anymore necessarily in shaping new world citizens with a Western way of thinking. But China still is interested in doing that with Africans. So I think that it seems to me that's where the big the big difference lies. Um, what then the, the question that it then raises and that I actually actually like to ask Ismail, to which extent do these Africans actually love Chinese language or Chinese culture, and to which extent is it simply the thing that's available? The thing that if you're interested in trying to get overseas or interested in, in getting an overseas qualification, all of the other countries where you would traditionally go are increasingly battening down the hatches and making it basically impossible for African students to study there. So to which extent is China really, really attractive and to which extent is it attractive enough? I think that's a really great question, Kobus. And I think it, the attractiveness of China has increased, uh, I would say, uh, amongst ordinary Africans, particularly amongst young people. And the people I spoke to at the Institute in Dakar definitely felt that one of the main reasons that they should learn Mandarin was because they had seen the Chinese uh, build infrastructure in their country. They've seen the, the presence of the Chinese increase in Dakar and in Senegal. And many of them thought that learning Mandarin would be a way to get a job uh, in China, but also to get a job maybe in uh, Dakar and Senegal working with the Chinese or with Chinese companies. And I think the other thing is that you're seeing an increase in interest about China. Um, and that's because the, the, the presence of the Chinese has increased across the continent, but also because, as you know, you were saying before, there's been less in interest perhaps over recent years from old colonial powers, say in Africa, whether the British or the French, and also the fact that if you're a young African undergraduate student in Dakar or in Nairobi or wherever, and you'd like to go and study abroad, the reality is that it's very difficult to get a visa to go to Europe. And it's become much more difficult in recent years. And actually, the, in China, it's becoming easier. And while I was in Senegal back in January, um, the Chinese um, embassy that had made an announcement saying that they would make it easier for Senegalese students to obtain Chinese visas. So now it's actually much easier for uh, students from across the continent to study uh, in China. And by the way, that's not just in China. If you look at Turkey and in India, Malaysia, these kinds of countries are becoming um, easier destinations if you're a bright, able, educated African who wants to go to abroad to further their skills. So it's a bit of both. On the one hand, there's growing interest. And then on the other hand, it's much more difficult for young Africans to get to traditional countries they might have gone in the past, like in the UK or the US or France. So now they're looking to China and China, it seems, is welcoming them. 
Yeah, I want to talk about a, a slightly different angle here in moving beyond the, the student side and the propaganda side, but the need for African countries to develop sophisticated China policies. Now, there's this old saying that China has a policy now for each African country, but most African countries don't have a China policy. And and I, I will admit, I'm a little bit biased. I speak, read, write fluent Chinese. So I feel that now that I can speak the language at a much more sophisticated level, I actually have insights that I have now that I didn't have when I, when I wasn't able to speak. I don't believe that you can effectively understand this country without speaking the language. And I've heard that from other sinologists as well. Of course, there's a lot of academics out there who don't speak Mandarin. I'm just skeptical that you, if you don't understand and speak to people and get all the, the nuance and the texture of this very, very complicated culture, you're not going to understand how this place works because they think and their policies and their history is so different from that of the West and it's just radically different. So I think it's so important for these students who are coming back from studying in China, back to places like Senegal, and for the students who are at the Confucius Institutes to be learning Chinese so that countries like Senegal can develop more sophisticated China policies, to negotiate more effective deals, to not get ripped off, to be able to read the signs of when the negotiations are happening. Because what we're having now is this concern that we're building an unequal, unsustainable relationship between China and African countries. And this can't go on like this in many countries. And I'm just, I'm really hoping that we're going to turn the corner and develop a whole new generation of young Africans who can speak Chinese and negotiate these better deals and not let the Chinese take advantage of these smaller African countries when they have have power and money and leverage. What's your take on that? I think that is a really important point. And I, I saw that firsthand, which is, you know, the fact that speaking Mandarin it has already given um, opportunities uh, for young Senegalese and Africans studying at this institute, because this institute has actually been going for well, five years now, it opened, I think, in, in 2012. And the new building, uh, the impressive building, which I visited uh, in January, was opened in 2016. And some of the people who teach at the Institute today had actually studied at the Institute before and had got uh, scholarships to Chinese universities. And they had spent three years or two years studying um, Mandarin in, at a Chinese university. One of them who had studied at Dalian uh, University in China for three years is now one of the teachers um, at the Institute. And he speaks fluent Mandarin and what he was telling me was his perception of China changed uh, for the better but also he felt much closer to the Chinese that he was able to um, be much more uh, you know freely mixed with them and I think that is a really important thing for Africans to have uh, especially as you laid out Eric in terms of imbalance that exists between China and the, that exists between African nations and I also think what's really interesting and I picked up on the ground is that um, the dominant language in Senegal is Wolof what was interesting was the teacher I was just mentioning he said to me interestingly culturally there's a lot more similarities between the Senegalese and the Chinese than there is between the Chinese and the French. And he said, when they speak their local dialect Wolof, actually, um, it's much easier to translate between Mandarin and Wolof than it is to go via French. So that's also another interesting dimension to all of this. And finally, uh, if you look at the you know history of uh, foreign languages in Africa, of course, the dominant ones have been French and English, the old colonial languages. And one thing that I saw at the Institute and people I spoke to there is that 
There is not only an increasing awareness of Mandarin as a foreign language, but there's also an increasing desire. And not just in Senegal, but in the past of Africa, people feel that perhaps in 50 years time or more, that young Africans may end up speaking Mandarin as the preferred foreign language of business and commerce, um, which obviously will be to the benefit of Africans. If they speak Mandarin really well, as you say, Eric, then that might surely help them in their dealings with China. Ismail, um, you mentioned in your article that a lot of these young Senegalese are also fans of Chinese pop culture. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the role of pop culture in all of this, you know, kind of influence building um, and language learning. Um, and do, do you get the feeling that they are, um, does it go anywhere beyond just simply loving you know, particular kind of action movie stars or, you know, kind of the glamour of Chinese contemporary action film? Or is there is there kind of a, a deeper engagement with, with the pop culture to the extent where it starts shaping your worldview? The way that the background to this question is, uh, is I have a, a real interest in the popularity of, of US pop culture in Africa and the way that it relates to US soft power in, in Africa. So people always t- say that the US has a lot of soft power in Africa because its pop culture is so popular. And its pop culture is very popular. But if you look at the pop culture that is pop, American pop culture that is popular among young Africans, it is frequently some of the cutting edge African American pop culture. You know, so it's Beyonce, it's Donald Glover, it's, you know, a, a lot of a lot of the, the new TV and, and music things that's being made by young black Americans who are all uniformly extremely critical of America. Um, you know, and where a lot of internal American issues around race and so on are being kind of fought out in the arena of pop culture and it is that debate that has a lot of influence in, in you know among young black uh, Africans not just simple fandom of the US um, you know it's a lot of things around Black Lives Matter a lot of things around uh, you know around systemic injustice in you know kind of where the US is frequently being described as a, kind of a, an arena of racism of or, of injustice so you know so, so long windedly I'm you know kind of asking to which extent do you feel that this kind of engagement with Chinese Chinese pop culture is starting to open up more complexities rather than simply ending at fandom. Right. Well, I think that was a really interesting overview, Kobus. Uh, so first of all, most of the young people I interviewed at the Institute in Dakar had not been to China. The Institute does award 50 scholarships a year to go uh, for the best students to go and study at Chinese universities and improve their Mandarin. And some of them stay there and some of them come back. Now, in terms of pop culture, I, I, I think the prism of pop culture is very important. The first thing to say is America has, no doubt, the most significant pop cultural um, influence anywhere in the world. And particularly in Africa, and the reasons you were sort of drawing out, Kobus, is because Africans can see themselves in a sense. Because the people that they see in the movies look like them. And of course, you must mention at this stage, Black Panther. Um, I know there's been some controversies around that, but the most important thing about that film, I mean, it's first of all brilliant and I enjoyed it very much, but it's because Africans can see themselves on the screen, uh, which is in contrast, let's say, to the ways in which blackness and Africans have been depicted in Chinese media. There have been often some controversies on Chinese television and so on. So, of course, America has this advantage. And of course, because African-Americans, in a sense, sort of represent Africans because we look the same. And I think also to the important point to to add to this um, is that, for example, completely different story, but when I've been covering migrant stories in Europe and it being interviewing young African migrants in Italy and Spain and other places in Europe, I've always noticed that most of those young African guys, whether from Gambia or Eritrea or from Somalia, have often kind of used 
rap and hip hop culture as, as a kind of symbol, um, you know, sort of the caps and the, the sportswear and the swagger and all of that. Um, and it was interesting because they'd never been to the US, of course. But again, that is a cultural reference and it's no longer just a cultural reference, by the way, American and African-American uh, culture. It's also a reference for non-Black and non-African peoples all across the world. Having said all of that, I think it's for sure the case that uh, Chinese culture is beginning to get more interest in the continent, I'd say. And historically, yes, we all know about Jackie Chan. And, you know, we all know about those classic um, kind of, you know, films that were made um, in Hong Kong. We know about the kind of that genre um, of martial art films. Uh, we know about Bruce Lee, etc. But I think what's happening slowly is that there's an increasing interest amongst young people in Africa and particularly in Senegal, where I was, you know, um, in Dakar, talking to young people. They obviously hadn't been to China, but, you know, they you know were interested in Chinese culture. They were interested in Chinese movies. I think there's also less knowledge probably with Chinese music, and that's probably because of the language issue. Um, I, but I think the other thing that is really interesting is, um, beyond all of that, is that what's happening if you go to, not even in Kenya or Senegal, if you go to Somaliland, for example, uh, if, you, if you go to Ethiopia, but if you go to even places that are off the beaten track in Africa, you'll see Chinese. You may even increasingly see a Chinese restaurant. And I think that way... F- is going to be the most important in for Chinese culture into Africa. Because what you see is in Dakar and in Senegal, there's an obsession with all things French, of course, because it's a French culture in terms of the French colonial, uh, you know, history. Um, And there's amongst kind of the moneyed kind of crowd in Dakar, the very trendy restaurants and bars. There's a real obsession with European cuisine and with expensive wine and European brands and all of that. Um, So China's got a long way to catch up. But what's happening is that slowly in Dakar, you're seeing Chinese restaurants open. You're seeing Chinese entrepreneurs come. You're seeing Chinese food being sold. And the one thing is that all those young people I interviewed at the Institute, none of them had been to China, but all of them had had Chinese food. They had all had um, Chinese food. Not all of them could eat with chopsticks. I think a lot of them struggled. And we had a little bit of humor about that. But all of them had tried Chinese food. And all of them had been to a Chinese restaurant. And all of them had been to the part of town where there is Chinese in Dakar. And I think that kind of connection is going to ultimately be a really important aspect of the broader culture. But of course, films and music and so on. I I think China's still got a massive way to go on that. So now it's General Chow's chicken is going to be the gateway into Chinese culture in places like Dakar and uh, <laughs> French West Africa. I think the French are the, the French are probably coiling in horror <laughs> to think that they're being displaced by uh, General Chow's chicken. Nonetheless, listen, Ishmael and Ashe, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you sent me a draft of the article, but you didn't have a title on it. If people want to look up the article on the South China Morning Post. What's going to be the title? Do you know? Not yet. Um, so we'll share a link um, when the piece is up this week later. We will do most likely by the time that this show is out. The article will be out on the South China Morning Post and uh, highly recommend to read Ishmael's reporting. He's uh, covering China and Africa now quite regularly, you know, once or twice a year. And uh, he does some excellent reporting. And this is really, again, an interesting story because it touches on so many sensitive issues of culture and politics and history and propaganda. And uh, when you're reading his story, I urge you to kind of think about my rants here a little bit about the double standards that I think the West is putting on the Chinese. 
sure, you're not going to get lectures on Tibet and Xinjiang and, and Muslim separatists in the Confucius Institutes. That's not going to happen. Uh, but similarly, it wouldn't happen in American or the Goethe Institute and in, in the Germans to touch on sensitive issues there as well. So it's a fascinating topic. Kobus, uh, we will continue to, to cover this story, but we wanted to thank you very much, Ismail, for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure always to come on your podcast. Very much enjoy it. Thank you so much. Kobus, this is really the rare story about the Chinese in Africa that seems to be positive. So much of the coverage, especially lately, has been negative about debt, about corruption. There's been labor problems. There's been, uh, you know, all of these different things that, that really are really negative. And so to see Ismail's reporting that is excited about Chinese culture. And, you know, again, I, I, I'm biased here because I've committed so much of my life to studying Chinese culture and I love it. So, and in this case, I have to admit the fact that, uh, you know, to see other people share the joy that I've taken over the years is to me really exciting. What's also for, interesting for me is how it is increasingly shaping, you know, in any kind of investment in long, long-term education, especially language education, is also an investment in how people will live their lives in the future. Because as you know, once you've learned a, a foreign language, that connects you to that country for the rest of your life. I mean, I speak Japanese and I have a special, like I pay special attention to anything Japanese, you know, just simply for that reason. And, you know, so, so this, this is shaping the connections between Africa and China right at the moment when the West is increasingly seems little interested in those connections. They're not, you know, it's, it's, it's a long time since the West was like eager to really build, to, to really attract talented Africans or like really build connections with Africa. Like mostly the West seems to be mostly engaged in trying to keep as many Africans away from its shores as possible. And so it's, it's going to really shape the world, I think, in the future. You know, all of these Africans learning Mandarin, building cultural competence in Chinese culture. It might not necessarily be that, that it's going to only shape connections between China itself and their home country. But in, in, in the largest scheme between Asia and Africa, you know, it's, it becomes actual South-South cooperation with, with no Western involvement. It's a very interesting yeah. shift. It is. And I think it's so important for Africa. And as that point I made earlier in the program about how African countries need to have a China policy. And this is interesting because this is not uniquely an Africa policy. One of the things I was talking about with a U.S. diplomat a couple weeks ago is how he was telling me how the State Department in the United States has basically purged or just pushed out their China specialists. And there's not a deep bench of China knowledge, even in big governments like the United States. So uh, and that's putting them at a disadvantage in negotiating with the Chinese. The Chinese, for their side, have negotiators who are familiar with the United States and negotiated with the United States for the past 25 years. They know how to negotiate with the Americans. And that gives them a distinct advantage. And I hope that Africans will take advantage of this opportunity, whether it's to go to China to study, to learn Mandarin online, to learn Mandarin at Confucius Institutes, in schools, in private schools, wherever they can, because I think it will really help in the long run. I know, and you and I are very, very sensitive to the politics of language in Africa, particularly in places like South Africa, with regards to the colonial history of foreign languages being imposed on people. But I see this differently. I see this in many ways as the opportunity to take advantage of what comes from being, you know, speaking the language of your largest trading partner. It is so important. Final thoughts from you. Yeah, and it just it just opens up a set of experiences of, of and ways of thinking that is not that's not open to you if you only learn Western languages. 
You know, it's a, you well, know, Chinese is just a different way of, of conceptualizing the world. And it's just valuable in and of itself, no matter, you know, even if China were a small little little island state with no economic power, that, you know, the, the richness of that language would still be make it worth learning. And now, of course, it brings a whole bunch of economic and political opportunities with it. So, yeah, I, I, I don't, yeah, I, I think it's important to do. So we we are two advocates for learning Asian languages, Japanese with Kobus, Chinese with me, uh, but not everybody agrees with us. We'd love to hear what you think. Uh, share with us your thoughts on whether you think it makes sense for Chinese students and young people to learn Mandarin, or should they actually just focus on reading, writing, math, and all the, you know, the basics, because those themselves are not easy, and also the consistency of education across Africa varies dramatically. So a lot of people say, you know what, it's a luxury to be able to learn a language like Chinese that really most people can't afford to do in terms of time or money and resources. But share with us your thoughts. You can find me on LinkedIn, we're on Facebook, we're on all the major social platforms. And of course, you're in my email address, you'll be able to connect with me in this in the show notes of this podcast. We're still trying to iron out Cobus's email address. We're having some problems. A lot of you have written to Cobus, I know, and you haven't gotten responses. And that's because they're somewhere in the Google universe right now floating around. We're not sure, but we are looking to fix that problem. Uh, in the meantime, you can send uh, emails to me and I will pass them on to Cobus. So we'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Cobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.